Welcome to episode 128 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Alice, Eric, and Tammy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Alice, Eric, and Tammy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. What makes you a leader? How do you divide leadership and management? Can you set clear boundaries between yours and others' responsibilities? Today we're going to talk about concepts 8, 9, and 10, which address these concerns and some others. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at the Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of Concepts 8, 9, and 10. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is co-host Akila. How are you doing today, Akila? I'm pretty good, Spencer. How are you? I am well, thank you. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of the topic Concepts 8, 9, and 10. Following a short break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about how we practice these principles in all our affairs. We will follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. I want to start with a reading on Concept 8. Concept 8 says the Board of Trustees delegates full authority for routine management of al headquarters to its executive committees. And this is from the book Paths to Recovery. It's on page 298. By taking Concept 8 into my home, I learned that life can be enjoyed by everyone. My husband and I have three boys. I'm the homemaker, and my job is to keep the household running smoothly. I can do it all myself and go crazy, or I can delegate some jobs to their owners, like bed making, filling the hamper, keeping a clean bedroom, and retain some sanity. When things are put into perspective and I delegate responsibility, I can meet the end of each day with relative calm, knowing that everything got done in its own time without my frazzled attentions. Our first question here, then maybe a launching point, how does this concept, uh, which is, uh, you know, designed for describing how Al-Anon works as an organization, how does this provide for some consistent management of this largely voluntary and highly distributed global organization? Um, Because it seems like that could just be a real mess. I thought that um, this concept was actually a little bit confused. I mean, it goes back to the authority and responsibility, which we've talked about through all Mm -hmm. of the concepts. And so on page 296 of Paths to Recovery, I think this kind of really helped me understand. It said to delegate with confidence the groups, the conference members, and the board of trustees learn to choose competent leaders, assist in setting the direction and tone desired, and then allow those designated to do their jobs. And so for me, that really, it, you know, it goes back to the example that you read about the mom with the kids and the family. Um, and so this thinking about consistent management is there's a very clear um, purpose, which goes back to one of the traditions, which talks about the primary purpose. It's a clear purpose. Um, our trusted servants or our leaders are chosen because they understand that purpose and they work towards that purpose. And then everybody is working towards it, whether no matter what their position within the fellowship or within the, um, the organization. And I think that is what keeps it consistent. What, what about you? Mm-hmm. 
one thing that I saw as I was I was doing my reading uh, preparation is the way that these three concepts work together um, in that clearly um, you know you've got millions of people all over the world uh, in Al-Anon and they choose uh, representatives that uh, eventually go to the World Service Conference which happens I think once a year mm-hmm. um, and you know you can't have the World Service Conference which is all pretty much all volunteers coming together for every routine matter and so there has to be a clear delegation of responsibility for management, but um, as we see in in these and some of the other tradi- uh, concepts, the ultimate authority goes back to the conference, um, and and so there needs to be this this clear authority and responsibility. I don't know if I'm saying that very clearly at all. No, that makes perfect sense, actually. What brings this concept alive for me, though, is thinking about how I would pull this into my daily life. And that's one of the reasons that I chose that reading, because yeah. um, that reading really addresses this way in which uh, we delegate authority for routine management uh, in our daily lives and and in our personal lives and in our work life. And and uh, I, I think I've got, I mean, I've got an example, actually, that I'm just thinking about recently. Um, I've been, as a, Regular listeners to the podcast know I've been very busy at work recently, and uh, I had always had I had always had responsibility for uh, doing most of the cooking in our family uh, because I enjoy cooking and planning meals and so on. But what I was finding was that because of my work schedule being just more busy than usual, I didn't have time to do that. You know, I wanted to plan meals. I wanted to. Uh, do the shopping, get the right ingredients, and then put together nice meals, maybe not every night, but several nights a week. And what was happening was I would finish work at, uh, you know, 6 or 6.30, which is normally when I would be home making dinner already. And I would say, well, I I don't have the energy to do anything about dinner tonight. Let's get takeout. All right. And this, I, I recognized that this was happening, that that as the um, the reading has it, I was getting frazzled. Uh, and I asked, I said to my wife, I said, look, I can't, I can't do this right now. I know this has been my responsibility for, for a long time, but I can't do it right now. Uh, can you please do that for me? And then, um, and then I let go of it, you know, and, and she, she plans meals, she prepares them. And, and now I come home and there's food or food very shortly after I get home and I don't, and I can just relax, you know, and unwind from, from the the stress that will be over shortly, you know, it's a few more weeks, but I had to recognize that I couldn't take responsibility for um, that particular task that had been mine. And I had to delegate it. How about you got an example for us? Yeah. I mean, it was the same. I have, um, for me, it was, I hate cleaning a bathroom and it drives me crazy. And so I made that my daughter's chore. And she doesn't always do it consistent as consistently as I would like, but that is her responsibility. And I was just, you know, if it's going too long, I'm like, it's time to clean the bathroom. Like you need to get on that. And it makes it a lot easier because it's one less thing I have to worry about. And it does. It makes it a lot easier for me to do the other, many other things that I do around here. So I totally get it. Yeah. 
I see this this question. Once I delegate a task, am I willing to trust the results? And uh, again, with this this example of my wife making dinner, you know, she doesn't make the dinners that I would make right. if I was doing it. Uh, but she makes dinners that are tasty and nutritious, and um, and I don't have to make them right. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I, I can trust the results on that. And even if it's even if it's not the way I would do it, and you know, this also becomes very clear uh, in my job, where I feel since I've been with the organization a long time and um, relatively senior in in the uh, software engineering part of my organization, I feel a lot of responsibility for making sure that things get done right. But we're doing so much stuff that there's absolutely no way that I can micromanage those tests. I have to delegate. Uh, I have to trust that the other people in the organization are competent and that they will get the job done uh, effectively and on time uh, because I have my own work to do. Yeah, I have. See, so it's a little different because I teach. So in my, my professional life, I am in charge of pretty much everything that I do. Um, yeah. but I think it kind of goes into this other, cause what I was th- thinking when with you and your wife and with me and my daughter, and, um, it goes into being willing to ask for help and then being willing to let go once we do. And then yeah. this idea that, um, cause my daughter does not clean the bathroom the way I would. And that's, that's okay. Cause it gets clean. And I still, for me, I have to make sure that it's clean. Um, and then even if it's not, I'm just like, yeah, this isn't clean enough. You need to, you need to fix it. And I, I've backed off of how she does it as long as it gets done. Um, and mm-hmm. so, but that's something I learned here before I would have been much more uptight about it. Let's be real. Um, and so I think this is the thing where it's, you know, once again, how it's fear of asking for help. I mean, my ability to focus on priorities, because if I, A, if I hadn't asked her for help, I would be stressed out about that. And then I couldn't prioritize the things that I need to do, even though it's a very small thing, um, which gets into how important is it, right? It's a very small task, but it's something that needs to be done. And then the other question I have is kind of how does it remind me to focus on my priorities and invest Mm -hmm. my efforts for the greatest results? And again, just using the bathroom as an example, like the greatest the the priorities that's not a priority it's something that needs to be done but it's not my priority and that allows me to let that thing go so I can focus on things that are more important um, but that only helps I, I can only do that if I let go of the results and trust the person who I've asked for help to do what needs doing so yeah and I think that notion of focusing on priorities and being able to focus on priorities is is really critical. What I recognized was that uh, there were other priorities in my life at the at the moment mm-hmm. that uh, were more important than me making dinner. Right. Uh, and that one of those priorities was that I don't burn myself out. Yeah. It took me a while to recognize that you know what was happening and that I needed to actually make getting sufficient rest and getting sufficient downtime uh, from uh, oppressive responsibilities to make that a priority so that I would stay healthy. Right. So now we're into self-care. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Self-care comes back to self-care, doesn't it? Yeah. 
The other thing that you mentioned briefly here and that, that comes up in the readings and the questions on Concept 8 in, the, in our books is this fear of asking for help that so many of us have. Mm-hmm. That if I ask for help, it somehow means that uh, I'm uh, unable, I'm, I'm insufficient if I have to ask for help. Not good enough even? Not good enough. There you go. Exactly. You know, when we're able to ask for help, then we can uh, we can be more effective. Uh, we can, as it says, invest our efforts for greatest results. Right. I mean, even on page three hundred of Pastor Recovery, it says, you know, I was brought up to believe if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself, which is definitely where I. That's kind of where I come from. Like we don't we the way our group was. You didn't ask for help. You figured out a way to do it by yourself. Even if you needed help and you had to ask for help, of course, you always had your backup plan and your backup plan (laughs) for your backup plan of how you would do it yourself if the other person didn't follow through. So it still becomes stress. I mean, then the stress is, of course, keep waiting for the person to fail or waiting for things to go wrong instead of saying other people can do this thing and be helpful to me. And I can, again, let go of of it enough to focus on other things. But if I don't do that, my energy is still expended. My mental energy, my spiritual energy is still expended on making sure that this thing is done that I'm supposed to be getting help for and that I've asked for help for. That's where that, that idea of there's no point in asking for help because I have to do it myself or stress out about doing it myself anyway. And when we say, you know, in mm-hmm. Al-Anon, we learn to let go, you know, let go of outcomes and things like that. That's where that comes in, I think, a lot. Yeah. I'm looking at, at these three concepts. And for me, um, I think now it makes sense to to jump ahead to concept 10 and then come back to 9. Because it seems like concept 10, which talks about authority and responsibility and management, dovetails nicely with this one that was about authority and management. So why don't we do that? Concept 10 says, service responsibility is balanced by carefully defined service authority and double-headed management is avoided. Uh, And there's a reading here. Maybe you could read that. From Reaching for Personal Freedom on page 159. Those of us affected by the disease of alcoholism are familiar with chaos and confusion. Lack of clarity in a science task further contributes to the larger problem. In some situations, we may have been given the responsibility for a task, but not the authority to accomplish it. In other situations, responsibility for a task was not clearly defined, and no one was accountable for the results. Double-headed management can occur when responsibility and authority are not clearly defined, and more than one person or group is given the same task or job to complete. It is important that everyone understand their responsibilities and that their responsibilities do not overlap. When clear lines are drawn between responsibility and authority, there is defined accountability and any conflicts can be minimized. Concept 10 states that responsibility and authority should be balanced. We become empowered when we are given responsibility to do a job as well as the authority needed to complete it. And I want to just quickly connect that to what happened when I, in my head, at least what happened when I asked my wife to, to take over dinners that for the next couple of weeks, I would still have this thing in my head like, okay, so what are we going to do for dinner tonight as I was getting ready to leave work? And I think a couple of times I even like started to do something about it and then remembered that, oh, no, this is this is her job because otherwise we could have ended up with two dinners. Yeah. 
Or I would come home and say, hey, how about, how about we have pizza tonight? And she said, well, actually, I have this thing. I'm, oh, yeah, right. I forgot. I don't know. How do you see this, this concept of double-headed management? This one I really like because we've talked about it in meetings and stuff before. So I think even in past recovery, they give the kind of example of a kid playing their parents against, against each other. Yeah, asking one parent and then asking the other. And if the two sides aren't in communication, then neither side has authority because the kid knows like, oh, I can ask, if I ask mom, she says, no, I'll just ask that. And he'll say yes. And then I'll get what I want. And that's double-headed management. It's two people in charge of one thing, but they're not clear on their roles um, or who gets the final word or even that they should be working together to come up with an answer. Um, and I think that that, it's something that I encountered, especially because my parents and I share a place. It, it gets into triangulation a little bit, too, that idea of talking around people yeah. and trying to get people to do what you want because you, you know, trying to manipulate a situation so that it goes your way. Because let me ask A to do, ask A about this thing concerning B and C, because maybe A can get C to do it. Instead of me asking, see, you know, that whole thing that goes on. Um, And so that's what I think of double. So when I think about triangulation, I understand that when I think about um, two or two committees being given um, similar tasks and then they start overstepping their bounds, then they're in direct conflict because it's like, I'm supposed to do this. And then, you know, the the big challenge, just like in concept eight, is that then nobody does it. So they're either in conflict or nobody handles it. That's really what I think about with the double-headed management thing. Like there can't be two bosses, right? There has to be one boss or else where nothing is done because nobody knows who's in charge or that both get played against each other to create chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the the kid asking dad and then asking mom or vice versa example because I'm I'm willing to bet that just about everybody has experienced that either as as the kid or as one of the parents and uh, and can really I, you know I can definitely connect to that. But I also was thinking about how this has come into play at work where we have we have a number of different. Um, product lines in our organization. I guess we'll call them product lines. It works. And each of the people that's in charge of their product line has uh, ideas about what they want to do, how they want it to work. And these people are basically equal at an equal level in the organization. You know, nobody's the boss of somebody else. Okay. Uh, but they're giving directions to the technical group about, well, we want to do this, we want to do that. And, and when two different uh, people at the at the director or vice president level both say, "Hey, we want to do these things." Um, we find it very hard at the technical level to set priorities, yeah, because each of them is saying, "No, mine is the most important." Mm-hmm. Another example that I thought of: uh, my wife used to work as an administrator in a hospital department, and so she had a boss who was in the administrative line. Um, you know, he was her her direct boss. Uh, signed her timesheets or whatever. Um, I don't. I don't know if she had timesheets, but anyway. And then there were several like division heads that were doctors um, that also felt like they had authority uh, and could tell her what to do. Yeah. And and I think she found it a very difficult act to balance uh, between 
the different doctors that were giving her orders and then her direct boss that was also giving her orders and, and, and to accomplish all the things that people wanted done. And sometimes I think they were conflicting. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was, I know, you know, secondhand, I would hear these stories when she would come home and talk about it, but it sounded like it was a very difficult situation to be in. Mm-hmm. And she did eventually leave that position, uh, because I think it just was, um, a little much, a little too much stress. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Concept 10 says, besides talking about this double-headed management, is that you avoid this by clearly defining who's responsible for what. Yeah. And, and where, where the ultimate authority is, you know, where, where do you appeal? Obviously, in a, in a family situation where you've got the two parents, they're pretty much equal in authority, and they have to agree with each other so that the kid doesn't triangulate on right. it. Right. Uh, in, the, in the work situation... Uh, that I was talking about where I maybe have two two um, product line managers that are each saying my thing's important. We do have somebody who's both of their bosses and and uh, ultimately a board of trustees who can make those decisions if those if nobody else can make those decisions at a lower level if they can't decide between them uh, a better you know, better approach might be for everybody to sit down in a room and just talk about it and come out with it. So a compromise or a, you know, we'll do this, then we'll do that, or we actually can do them both at the same time if we don't do this other thing or whatever it is. Within my team, there's also some clearly defined areas of responsibility. We have um, the, the software developers who are responsible for the technical implementation of um, the things that we've been asked to do. Uh, we have a person who we label product manager who is responsible for uh, defining you know, what the outcomes need to be. Um, and so when somebody has a question about a technical question, that goes to maybe the, you know, the lead technical developer or whatever. When somebody has a question about, well, how is this, how is this supposed to work from the point of view of the, the end user from the point of view of the business needs? That's a question that gets answered by the product manager. And so it makes it, it makes it a lot easier for us to say, when I don't know about something, who do I go ask? Mm-hmm. When you were talking too, I just thought of um, something else, which I hadn't considered, but it just, you know, came to me. Because in the reading, it says that this idea in all areas of our lives, we need to be clear about what our responsibilities are. And when we're thinking about double-headed management, it was making me think of people-pleasing. So if I'm trying to, Mm. if I'm, and we were talking about self-care too, and this is what they were just all like kind of clicked with this idea. Like if I'm trying to make other people happy, or if I'm trying to serve other people's best needs or interests, then I'm not taking care of myself. And that means that I'm letting somebody else become the ultimate authority of my life, which then leaves me in chaos and in a place where I can't take care of myself. And so reminding myself that the ultimate authority about what I do should be between, you know, me and my higher power, but should definitely be something that's clear with me when it comes to my personal affairs. Mm-hmm. Who is my ultimate authority? Well, they can't, Spencer can't be the ultimate authority in my life because Spencer doesn't live my life. I do. And I have to live with all the decisions I make. And so there are times I have to step in and say to myself, listen, what about you? You know, what about what you need? And are you taking care of yourself here? And if I'm not, then that means that somebody else is in control. And that's not good either. I'll just say, um, I, I wouldn't want to be the ultimate authority in your life. I was just I using you as an example. <laughs> <Yeah>. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
I just was like, yeah, I don't want it. <laughs> don't give it to me, please. <laughs> um, but that brings us around to this place where I know I've been uh, as, you know, one of the things that qualifies me for Al-Anon in effect is that uh, I will take on responsibilities that are not mine. Yeah, absolutely. And gladly sometimes. <laughs> And then, of course, end up not taking, maybe not taking care of the things I'm supposed to do or causing conflict or causing uh, resentment from the person whose responsibility it really is. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this concept 10 in right after 8 is because, for me, that reflects back to the home situations we both talked about, about um, you know me giving uh, authority and responsibility to my wife to, to create dinners, uh, you giving authority and responsibility to your daughter to be- clean the bathroom. Yeah. And trusting the outcome and letting go of uh, our desire to still have responsibility and make sure things turn out the way that exactly the way that we might want them to, mm-hmm. uh, not being able to let go of that. And so I, I I made that connection in my head right right there. Yeah, that's pretty good. There's another question here about situations where one person has responsibility and a different person has authority. I know in my head that. I feel like there, I've been in those places. I probably have been in those places at work quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Over the last uh, few years, I feel like we've developed a much better sort of division of an understanding of and maybe um, explicit uh, definition of responsibilities of different different people and different roles. But definitely in the past, there have been cases where uh, maybe I was given the responsibility to do something, but I... Uh, somebody else was was holding the authority and and thus and that to me that tends to lead to micromanagement uh, where they're saying no 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 don't do it that way do it this way yeah i was just talking to a friend about this last night and i work well i don't work at the university anymore but i used to work at a university um a friend of mine still does and she works as a ta and so for her class she leads the discussion section. She's not the, I don't think she's the instructor of record, but there's a larger lecture and then she leads a section, a discussion section. We were talking about how she was having some challenges with the class and it's like there's only so much she can do because she's not the ultimate authority for the class, even though she's responsible for her section. She has no authority to change like assignments or readings or things like that, which would give her much more control and also mm-hmm. maybe make it easier for her to deal with some of the issues she was having with her students. And so that's a, yeah. that would be a really good example of a time when one person has responsibility because she's still in charge and she has to do this, and then, but she doesn't have authority to ultimately be like, I want to make changes or I want to do specific things. And if things are going wrong, she can be responsible for it, but still have no power in that situation or authority in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great example that I can connect to uh, that, you know, she as the TA or me as the TA back when I was doing that thing, my responsibility was to lead the students in understanding uh, typically understanding the homework and the mm-hmm. kind of uh, discussion sections that I was responsible for uh, so that they could learn the material. But I had no, as you say, no authority over what the homework was. And I might look at a particular assignment and say, well, this is really stupid. Right. Uh, but I couldn't change it. 
Uh, and and probably politically, I wish, couldn't even express that opinion out loud. Yeah. I, I love that example uh, because it's so true. And we were talking about how sometimes if the students know that you're a TA, like if it's like you're, you're just a TA, then um, again, so in some ways, it, if it, there's a real issue, you know, there's a clear authority, you know, like we were talking about, like you have the steps you go through. But in other ways, it's like, what are you going to do about it? You know, like that, that challenge to authority can be made because there is none, ultimately. So I think you must have uh, written this question. What kind of guidelines and definitions of a project would I find helpful before accepting a response? Yeah. That's a good thought question. <laughs> well, thinking about it, like how, I mean, thinking about what, right. What, what is, what is my job? What do you expect of me? What am I supposed to be doing? How much veto power do I have? You know? And I just thought about mm-hmm. this because I, I currently I'm, I have taken on a new responsibility at work. And one of the things is I don't have, like I was speaking to a coworker who's done something similar and, you know, like I don't have a timeline on this. I don't know. I know kind of what I'm doing. We're kind of taking shape with the project, but it's like, it would be nice for me to know at least what is my commitment expected to be, how long. And so these are conversations I didn't have before I accepted yeah the responsibility and while I'm excited about the project I'm realizing those are things that I do need to know because it probably would have helped me make a decision um, that would be more in line with my life like I'm really excited about it so I don't think it'll be an issue but it's just that idea of like yeah there are things that I didn't consider and thinking things through and um, using some of the skills we learn, like, let me think about that or let me ask you about it instead yeah. of just accepting something because it sounds exciting or we want to help or we don't want to say no. And remembering to just take the time to think about it, I'll get back to you. Let me call you back. Let me think about it, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and I, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that was good. I wish I had been paying attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> It's it is a really good question, um, and it's something. It's it's a question for for me or for I guess anybody to keep in mind when uh, you're asked to to take on something new. Is what do I need to know mm-hmm. about this thing I'm being asked to do before I can even make a decision? Yeah, I was recently asked to uh, give a uh, give a sh- talk at a um, a district meeting mm-hmm. that they're doing in a in a few months, and first I had to find out what the scope was. Mm-hmm. What's the what is the topic that I'm supposed to talk about? How long am I supposed to talk for? Are there other people talking? Uh, and when do you need to know by? Yeah. Ooh, that was good. Right. And so I I just asked those questions. I said, look, I can't make that decision right now. I need to think about it and and. Here's what I hear. And, and some of the questions that I had were answered directly, at, you know, but I also said, and when do, when do you need to know by? Do you need to know tomorrow? Or do you need to know next week? And, and so then the person who was asking me got back to me later with the answer to that question. And, and it took the pressure off. Yeah. And, the, and it gave me time to sort of let my higher power get the message back to me about uh, whether to say yes or not. 
Um, and I did ultimately say yes, even though uh, the topic that they're asking me to talk about is a scary one. I figured, you know, I actually probably need to talk about it if it scares mm-hmm. me. And, and I also had time to consider, do what do I have to say? Do I have something to contribute here that somebody else might identify with and be able to, to take with them? And so uh, that was... It was it was really helpful to to be able to say no. I need to wait. I need to think. I need to know really what this involves. I need to decide whether I can meet the the um, the request that you're making of me in a in a reasonable way, uh, rather than just sort of uh, emotionally responding with "Oh my God, no!" or "Oh sure," and then "Whoa, wait, did I get it? What did I get it for? I'm not sure what I got it right. for." So that's a it's a really good question. I have to I have to remember to keep that one uh, in my in my head. Why don't we move on? Are we ready to move on? Yeah, to I think nine? so. Okay. Um, let's see. Why don't you read the concept? Okay. Concept nine says good personal leadership at all service levels is a necessity. In the field of world service, the board of trustees assumes the primary leadership. And the word that I pulled out of this, because it appears twice, is leadership. Mm-hmm. Paths to Recovery, on pages 303 and 304, quotes uh, from an essay uh, written by Bill W., who was uh, one of the founders of AA, um, an essay about leadership that actually appears in our Al-Anon service manual. And so they, they pulled some quotes about qualities of leadership. Mm-hmm. A leader is a person who can put principles, plans, and policies into such dedicated and effective action that the rest of us want to back him up and help him with his job. A good leader originates plans and policies for the improvement of the fellowship. Good leadership knows that a fine plan or idea can come from anyone, anywhere. Leadership is often called upon to face heavy and sometimes long-continued criticism, an acid test. So this notion of leadership is really central to Concept 9, and it talks about good personal leadership, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what that actually uh, means. Well, I think I like the on page 305 of Pastor Recovery and the, um, the member share where they talk about little kids playing and they talk about the natural leaders, and it says, um, even with very young ones, you can pick out the natural leaders. They are the ones who are having such a good time that every other child wants to do what they are doing. And then they contrast that with the domineering bossy kid who's concerned with making rules and making everyone else follow the rules that other children lose interest. And so thinking about good personal leadership, that made me think of like, yeah, I love it when I'm, I'm excited about doing a project or participating in something because other people seem to be having a good time with it and it seems to be working for them, which of course connects directly, I think anyway, to, um, to go into meetings and seeing how people talk in meetings and then they, you know, this is how we pick our sponsor who has what you want. We find that person, um, and they are not in charge of us. Um, even though a leader can be in charge of us, but, if we if we have a sponsor who helps guide our recovery, then we are trusting them to be a good leader for us and personal leader because they have something that we want and we're willing to do what they did to get it just because it seems like it's working so well for them. Yeah, and as you were saying that, as you were reading that, um, I'm reminded of, of a quote that... Uh, 
I had to go look it up because I couldn't remember who it was from. It's from the author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry who wrote the, the Little Prince. He says, When you want to build a ship, do not begin by gathering wood, cutting boards, and distributing work, but rather awaken within men the desire for the vast and endless sea. Mm-hmm. And this idea that both Bill expressed in this, um, you know, people want to want to help. Yeah. Dedicated and effective action. The rest of us want to back him up and help him with his job. And then you, uh, in that reading, talked about the the child who's having so much fun that the other kids want to do do what he's doing. And uh, and I think that is um, a characteristic of leadership that really um, we don't. I think I don't get the feeling from sort of what's the way society views a leader that we don't really look at it that way so much in, in American society today. We look at it as somebody who knows where we're going and has the plan and mm-hmm. is going to take us there um, rather than somebody that has a vision that we want to follow. And I feel like the most effective leaders, and I can look definitely within my, my work organization, the people who have a vision, yeah, a clear vision of of where they want to go, and they're able to inspire the rest of us to see that vision and say, "Yes, let's do that." Those are the ones that are really effective leaders. Uh, and there's a real difference between leadership and management. Yeah. And, well, I'm thinking um, too. I mean, I, this is probably going to lead right into that. But the part, like this this project I'm doing at work, one of the things it says right where so a good leader originates plans and policies for the improvement of the fellowship, and then. This is from the quoted section from Bill W. And then good leadership knows that a fine plan or ideas can come from anyone, anywhere. And so the project we're doing is in conjunction with some other schools. And one of the things that, and this gets into the management, but one of the things that we had to figure out or that we're working on is we're trying to create this plan in conjunction with these schools, but we don't necessarily understand the culture of the schools and what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. One of the things we talked about a lot in our planning sessions is we can't go in there and tell them what to do. We can't go in there and tell them this is exactly how it must be because it'll be different for each school. And we have a clear idea. We have so this idea of the vision. We know what the vision is. We know what we want to accomplish. We know what it's going to look like. <laughs> we know what the ultimate goal is and how we get there is not necessarily mapped out because we kind of have to figure it out in conjunction with these other people who know where they're coming from. And so instead of us, you know, cause we said, can you imagine somebody coming into our school and saying, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, we would all look at them like, what are you talking about? That's not how things work here. But this idea that, you know, like you were saying, this idea somehow that the leader comes in and knows exactly what to do and, and that step about really understanding where people are and giving them the vision so that they know and then being open to the ideas of other people. Like that's the difference between a leader and a manager. A manager is just going to tell you what needs to be done and how you're going to do it because that's just the way they want it done, I think. Anyway. Mm-hmm. There's a paragraph in, in Past Recovery that talks about sort of the, the characteristics of a mm-hmm. leader. Natural leaders are people with vision and enthusiasm that we want to follow. In addition to vision, to be truly excellent, they also need to be responsible, tolerant, stable, flexible, and of good judgment. And uh, and I think that connects to some of those quotes. You know that 
responsible in that you don't just say, hey, let's go to you know Alaska and then don't take any responsibility for actually um, helping people to, to make that happen. Uh, but also uh, the tolerant and listening, I forget exactly now, I put the book down. <laughs> this idea that, that good ideas come from from any uh, can come from anybody mm-hmm. and can come in at any time and that um, a good leader will take those uh, in and and then help everybody to come to um, uh, not necessarily consensus but at least an agreement on which of these ideas we're going to take because I want to go back to this building a building a boat yeah thing. you teach people to yearn for the sea but if you don't also have um, and maybe there's a combination of leadership and management here, but you know, one person could decide they want to build a, a canoe, and another person could decide they wanted to build a, a paddle wheel steamboat, and and another person could decide that you know they're happy to just uh, float on a surfboard. And if everybody goes off in their own directions, even though they're all sort of trying for the same end goal, nothing's going to get done. Right. Uh, and I think that that a, a leader not only can inspire people towards a goal, but can uh, help guide uh, other people uh, to a coherent path towards that goal uh, while still remaining flexible and in, in the exact details and probably delegating some responsibility yeah. and authority to managers who make sure that, well, okay, we're building a boat. It's got to have an engine here. The, you, 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 you go build the engine, and it's got to have a hull, and you go build the hull. And but we have to coordinate to make sure the engine fits in the hull or whatever. Okay, and that's about as much as I know about boat building. So now I'm going <laughs> to shut up. Well, and even I mean, if we take your example a little further, um, a manager is necessary when we're building the engine, right? Because someone who knows the steps to do. In order to fit, to complete the goal is important. It's just when and where is that necessary. Absolutely. And it's not going to be necessary throughout the whole process, but maybe there are very specific tasks that do need to be managed. But even then, the manager has to let the people do the work and let go of that. It still ties in with this idea of letting go. And you can have a manager who is still a, still a good leader or a bad leader, depending on how closely they have to be micromanaging. Yeah. There's a question, how have I served as a leader? And that's a hard one for me because it gets into this um, question of, you know, saying good things about myself, which I was always trained that that's like rude or whatever. Uh, But I'm thinking about, and I'm not sure whether this fits or not, but a couple of weeks ago I was at a retreat and I was chosen as one of the people that would lead small groups meetings within the retreat. So we would, we would come together and we would have workshops and we had dinner and we had some playtime, but we also had some time set aside for people to meet um, in a structured way in small groups to sort of dig deeper into the, the theme of, of the retreat. So I volunteered to, to be one. I've been going to the retreat for about 10 years off and on. And I figured, you know, about time to step up, take some, take some leadership and responsibility but and so I'm given I'm given a, a a booklet that has you know first meeting here's our theme here's some things you could do some activities you could do I know from past experience that we never get through all the suggested activities so I pick something to start with and then just see where we go and sit back and 
and let the the men in the group who were this is men's retreat, so they were all men. Let the men in the group sort of decide uh, how far they want to take a particular question or a particular activity, and if it feels like we're really uh, digging in on that one, uh, let go of some of the others that maybe I would, I personally would like to do. I felt my job as the group leader is not to to make things happen in lockstep, but to inspire the group to to come together and to have the conversations that we're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're having those conversations, the fact that we did a particular activity or something is not important. The important, the goal of the group is to have the conversation. Uh, and recognizing that as a leader lets me step back from my uh, desire to manage, to control the details of how we get there, uh, and to recognize that we are moving towards the goal. We're just not moving towards the goal in the way that maybe the person who wrote the, the packet or or I thought we would get there. Not yourself. How do you see yourself as a leader? Well, it was so, well, I'll just say this first, because it was funny when you were like <laughs> You couldn't think of it. You were trying to think of an example. And I, I immediately thought of an example of you being a leader. Now, because when you talked before about your work, like with the youth at your church and things like that. And now, but of course, it's my turn. And I'm like, so my, my answer is to, so just to tell you a little bit about me is I'm like, first of all, I'm an excellent leader. And also, I can think of no examples. So... <laughs> That is kind of where, that's kind of where, where I live. You know, it made me think of, because one of the questions too was, am I hesitant to be a leader? Why or why not? And one of the things is I do love being in charge of things and telling people what to do. But one of the things that has um, kept me, you know, when I've been like, oh, you could be a manager at work, you know, you could be a manager, you could do this. And it's like, I don't actually want to, this goes back to authority and responsibility. I remember being like, I don't want that responsibility because of course the only way I knew how to manage then was to, to either be completely hands off or a micromanager. But now when I think about being a leader, because I've learned to let go, because I've learned to delegate, because even thinking about the things we're learning today with the concepts, it's not quite as scary. And the biggest thing that keeps me from being a leader, like at work, is actually meetings because I hate them. Um, <laughs> and I get very bored in them and they are distracting, but I'm, I'm a teacher. I teach my students. I think that makes me a leader. I do other things where I sign up to help out with things. Um, and I'm much more open to it now because of being an Al-Anon because I know I don't have to do everything and I'm not, while I may be an ultimate authority, I'm not complete. I'm not responsible for every single thing that has to be done mm-hmm. and that I can let go. But before, I mean, before getting in program, it just would be like, I don't, I didn't want to be bothered because I knew that I would feel responsible for everything and then try to take, you know, feel like the burden of everything would um, fall on me. And so yeah. that just the idea of that was just exhausting. It's funny how we can each think of examples of the other person being a leader, but it's harder for us to think of examples of our, of our own leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I immediately thought of the role that a teacher, a good teacher, plays as a leader, mm-hmm. um, that 
leading the students to knowledge or whatever, um, or um, being being an example of of how to uh, how to learn or how to uh, do some critical thinking about something. Uh, you know, those are all leadership abilities and leadership tasks. So uh, it's it's just fun. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and I did think about I did think about the work that I have done with the youth at the church and and trying to be um, you know an example of responsible adult, an example of uh, somebody who's open, somebody who's flexible, somebody who uh, you know is accepting, and and trying to model that for some of these young people who are having difficulty with those characteristics in their own life, who are being you know, very judgmental or critical or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Let's see. Am I hesitant to be a leader? Well, so yes and no. Mm-hmm. Yes, in that there's a, always a fear of screwing up, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're the one, if I'm the one, let me let me keep this on a, I statements here. If I'm the one who is putting myself forward as a leader or having been chosen as a leader by somebody else, uh, like in a work situation, uh, then there's a fear of failure. Uh, oh, I'm the leader. I'm responsible. And if, if we don't succeed, then I, you know, it's my, all my failure. Uh-huh. And I think part of getting through that is recognizing that in anything that's a team effort, that, both the um, the glory of success and the the shame of failure, if I can use those words, are shared, um, and that uh, I can I can be the best leader I can, and we can still fail to achieve the uh, the end result for any number of reasons. And I'm going to give um, a very uh, time sensitive and and direct uh, example here. So last night I was watching. Uh, football game with uh, with friends, and it was the University of Michigan playing Michigan State University. So there's a there's a local rivalry going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and University of Michigan this year got a new coach. They're doing a lot better, and and we actually I think we're favored going into the game. In the last ten seconds of the game, the University of Michigan was ahead. All they had to do was kick the ball down the field and then prevent Michigan State from carrying it back for a touchdown in like one play. Yeah. The ball was snapped. The kicker fumbled the ball. And a Michigan State player picked up the ball and ran for a touchdown. It was zero seconds left in the game. And so (laughs) we were all like, yeah, we got the game won, and then boom. Okay, so... In, where does this come in with leadership and, and sort of responsibility? Well, the coach is, in a sense, the leader of the team. Uh-huh. The coach is, is leading the players and, and helping them to achieve their full potential and, and understand how to play the game and what their roles are and so on and so forth. But in the end, the success or failure of the team is not the coach's ultimate responsibility. Uh, it it li- relies on the whole team, yeah. all working together and doing their jobs. And and in that last ten seconds, well, okay, so the kicker fumbled the ball. Somehow, the ball went into the air. A Michigan State player caught it. A whole bunch of other members of the University of Michigan team didn't stop that guy from getting to the to the end zone. And you know, so it's not you can't say, well, this one thing. If this one thing had gone differently, um, and so 
when I look at that kind of thing, it's like, yeah, okay, we were really disappointed and we were, you know, but then we went on and we had a, a pleasant evening with friends afterwards. Uh, but if I let the fear that maybe somebody else is going to screw up and that failure is going to come back and, and I'm going to get blamed for it, if I let that fear prevent me from ever moving into leadership, um, I'm just holding myself back. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm preventing myself from being uh, the person that I know I can be. Uh, and that's a really long answer to that question. <laughs> I looked at these three and and I thought, these three concepts, and I thought, well, you know, I thought, well, eight and nine obviously go together, but then 10 is a little different. And And one of the readings talked about sort of concepts, I think, four through nine mm-hmm. being about sort of leadership and authority and responsibility. And, and I was like, well, does 10 fit in here? But what I saw was as we were talking that, yeah, like concept 10 really connects very closely to both of them about this division, a balance of authority and responsibility and how, um, how we can delegate and, and the difference between management and leadership. And they all, to me, they all, they really go together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm glad we had this conversation because I can think about taking these and, applying them sort of more explicitly yeah. uh, in, my, in my life when I think about um, how I both take responsibility and and delegate responsibility and how I um, then allow the person whom I've delegated actually to do their job. So that's, that's sort of my kind of closing thoughts on these uh, concepts. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I, not I actually as a, as a surprise, but I do agree with, I agree with you. I think that it really, right, because like I said, I kind of got concept 10, but thinking about 8 and 9 in conjunction with it. And it's always a good reminder to um, be willing to let go of outcomes and do my mm-hmm. part and make sure that I'm enthusiastic about it um, and thinking then will other people come on board because of my enthusiasm and doing my part. Um, and I did a, you know, I was looking at the readings too. And I think the other thing to remember is progress, not perfection. Like it takes time and it takes practice and to do these things. And we may not do them perfectly every time or, or anytime, but as long as we're doing it, we're moving in the right direction. Yep. So after a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And the first uh, musical selection that I chose, and you can listen to all the musical selections on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 128 slash 128. The song is by Eddie Cochran, although the version of the song that I'm personally most familiar with was done by The Who. The song is Summertime Blues, and this is, a, this is sung by a guy who uh, probably uh, a teenager or maybe a 20-something who's complaining about his boss and his job and how he basically has no authority and apparently at least the responsibility of showing up for work, which he's actually not accomplishing very well. <laughs> um, and, and it just, it, I don't know, this song came into my head when I thought about this notion of responsibility, authority, and delegation, and, and I just like the song. So here you go. Check it out on the website.
In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week, or in the past several weeks, in my case, it's been since I actually uh, participated in this section. Me too. Yeah, um, it's been busy, I've been busy, and uh, as I, I talked about a little bit about the retreat, uh, that was good, it was um you know, it was kind of like, ah, do I have time to do this with all that's going on at work? But I, it was, I felt it was important to sort of my serenity and my peace of mind to be able to get away and to sort of turn off the whole work thing in my head for a while. And I did that. I, uh, I deleted all the work email and calendar and everything from my phone so that even, I mean, I wasn't supposed to be like looking at my phone during the retreat. It's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a retreat. You're supposed to be there and be with the people that are there, be sort of um, focused on the, on the things. But, you know, I, I have my, I read uh, books on my phone. I have, you know, when there was free time, I could, do a crossword puzzle or read a book or something like that. And if I pick up the phone and if the email icon lights up with, you've got a whole bunch of messages Uh waiting for you, I'm going to go look at them. And that's going to take me right back into that. Oh my God, what's going on this, you know? So I had to let go of that. Um, And, uh, and that, that is really, that is something that I learned in the program is this um, ability to be the place that I am at the time that I'm there and to, um, let go of of external distractions. Um, I uh, another thing that it's been a, it's, there's been some travel going on. I went to uh, flew out to Utah to attend um, a commemoration of the sort of career and life of the man who was my PhD advisor back in the day. And it's been 30 years almost since I've been there, and definitely since I'd seen some of the people who came for this event and it was, it was great to be there. It was one of those, Oh, should I go to this thing? I don't know. I'm going to have to, you know, it's for a weekend to fly out to Utah and, and all this stuff, it's going to be expensive. Uh, but I felt like I really needed to do it because again, who, who knew if there was going to be another chance to see all of, all of these people that some of them I went to school with, some of them were, uh, came before me. Some of them came after me, and I didn't really know them. And to to see them all in one place at at one time, it also was a um, an interesting sort of retrospective on on the what ifs uh, that I find it really easy to to sort of torture myself with the what ifs sometimes. Although again, the program has helped with that a lot in saying you know what happened happened and and. Sometimes people say everything happens for a reason. I prefer the expression that the things that happened to me in my life have made me the person I am and brought me to the place where I am now. And I'm not unhappy with that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't go back 30 years and say, well, let's make a different decision and let's let's do things differently. And and one of the things that, that got a fair amount of uh, discussion as people presented sort of each of a bunch of people each talked about um, their their experience with with this man and uh, maybe where they where they went with it or why they came to it and part of that was people taking 
um, the work that I had been part of when I was a graduate student uh, and taking that and actually commercializing it and and turning into parts of products that are still uh, being being developed and being sold today. And I looked at that and thought, wow, well, you know, if I had stayed, I could have been part of all that fun stuff. But then I wouldn't have done all the other fun stuff that I've done in the last 30 years. Right. So it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting observation that I still can have these feelings. I can still say, oh, what if? But I can also say, but that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. And there would be a lot of other things. And I had been, I don't know, I had been in Al-Anon a couple of years maybe, and uh, I was uh, chairing the newcomer meeting after uh, one of my regular Al-Anon meetings and a, and a woman who was fairly new to Al-Anon uh, asked me if I regretted having married um, the uh, married my wife, who was the alco- primary alcoholic in my life. And, and I said, I can't answer that question, you know. I can't do that, what if. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would my because yes getting getting married to her uh brought some pain into my life but it also brought a whole bunch of joy into my life and am i willing to give up that joy in order to give up the pain and who knows what pain i would have had if i'd done it different mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh done it differently I, I i just can't go there yeah uh, and uh and so this was a reminder that i i just can't go there if you listen to uh to last week's uh replay episode, I, I bracketed it with um, uh, an opening and a closing that I had recorded on Monday while I was out uh, in the desert, uh, feeling feeling the vastness of the universe and my part in it. Having the opportunity to do that is, uh, is something that I've learned as, as I've grown spiritually, um, very much as, as, a, as a result of, of this program. So... I think that's where I'm going to leave it. A lot of stuff happened, but those are some of the sort of highlights that relate to uh, to recovery in my life. How about you? First, just what you were saying about the what ifs. We, were, you know, a friend of mine. I think somebody on Facebook have posted a thing like, if you could, if you could change something in your life, what would it be? And she was just like, I can't answer that because I think if I changed anything, I wouldn't have my daughter. And it was the, and I said, you know, I feel the same way. Like there are so many things. That I think I would have done differently, but there are so, but so many of my choices have led me to where I am today, which makes me where I'm pretty satisfied. Like I have a great kid. I have a great job. I'm living where I want to live. You know, like there are all these other things that have come about. And it's like, if I undo one of those choices, then where does that leave me? I don't know. Um, but getting back on the topic of my weekend recovery this week, I went to, my home group, which I haven't been able to go to because of back to school stuff. So it was really nice to be back for the second week in a row, finally. And the topic was actually step one. And we it was the reading and hope for today. And it was unmanageability, which you've done an episode on before. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, the October 10th reading from hope for today that the person chairing the meeting picked it. And I remember reading it on that day and being like, I wish I were leading the meeting so we could do this as a topic and we can talk about unmanageability. And then she picked it and I was like, oh, you did exactly what I wanted to. So it worked out just fine (laughs) for me. um, And, you know, we talked, most of us um, and shared about, for me anyway, unmanageability comes with obsessiveness. 
But anything I start obsessing about, that's how I know that I'm powerless. And if I'm obsessing, I need to, um, it's really step one, get into why am I powerless over the thing and what can I do to get out of the obsession? Uh, so what that has meant is because the biggest, there are two really kind of key things going on. One is my daughter's not doing very well in school. Well, in one of her classes in particular. And so I really had to practice detachment. And I got finally, I thought I had one in the pamphlets at home and I didn't. So at the meeting, I picked up like five. So I could have them. <laughs> and I've been reading it every day. And it's been very helpful. Yeah. Because, you know, the detachment. Yeah. Pamphlet. The little detach, it's like a little bookmark. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. And it's uh-huh. like, you know, don't create a, don't prevent a crisis if it's in a natural course of events. My daughter is old enough now to make her own decisions about school and things. And I was just like, and I, you know, the thing I had to realize too is, you know, cause I work at, I work in a college and I have these students who are kind of like, they, they have these crises and I don't know what their life situations are, but I was like, you know, if my daughter's going to fail this class, I want her to do it in high school while she still has a lot of, support and it's not going to be as detrimental as if even if she were in college and her scholarship depended on it or something like that and if i prevent this crisis she's not going to get what she needs um and so just really yeah. so it's really been really important for me to um to read that pamphlet my sponsor has talked to me a couple of times she's just like just let it go like everything she's like just let it go i'm like well she didn't just let it go you know um, and I've been, I told her, I was like, you know, you're, I've been thinking about every time something comes up and I'm just like, I need to let this go because I have to let her, I have to detach. I just have to detach. That's what has to happen. And of course, uh, there's also some boundary setting in there. So she missed school Friday because she, um, didn't get up, um, for school. <laughs> we talked about this before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so what I told her, I was like, okay. And, you know, as I'm getting ready for work and I'm thinking about all these things, and I was just like, let it go. Because we already have a punishment in place. And so, you know, I took her electronics for the weekend. Because the agreement is that if she misses school because she oversleeps or if she's late because she over, you know, she's excessively tardy, then I keep her electronics until she can get up and go to school on time. Well, if it's Friday, that means your next opportunity is on Monday. So, yeah. mm. um, so we've been talking, you know, so, and it's funny because of course, then she wants to bargain and she's like, no, no, no. And, and I'm just like, no, there's, that's it. You're not going to change my mind. Like there's when Monday comes, we'll see how it goes. Like that's it. So that, that's been good. The other thing is I've been struggling with money and I know people have written about it and you've talked about it a lot in the past and, this has been an ongoing issue pretty much since school started just because we keep getting on, I keep getting all these unexpected expenses related to school that are not budgeted for, which then mm. leaves me with zero dollars. Um, and one of the things that I realized is that it's very difficult for me because when it comes to this, there is, when I have no money, there is nothing I can do. And so all I can do is have faith. And so faith is an action. But it's also really hard for me because I'm a person who likes to do things. And so feeling like, so obviously I don't like being powerless. This is where <laughs> we're back to step one and I'm manageability, right? Um, and so it's just been 
really just being like, well, I have done all I can do and I have to let it go. And one of the women at one of my meetings said, just put it in your God box, put it put it in your God box and just, it'll be okay. It's always been okay. And I'm like, it has always been okay. And I have to just remember that. Um, and it's like, we have everything we need. And I think that's the thing that's hard sometimes. And everything we need so it's like yeah and that may mean doing a pantry inventory and figuring out what we're going to eat based on what we already have instead of going out and buying new stuff Mm -hmm. just because that's what i would prefer to do because i don't want to i don't want to cook i don't want to do these things or i don't know what's in there but i know i have an idea about what i want to do and it's like no but what what do you have available to you so there are always resources um but it's been pretty good and everything's been good Beyond that, especially because and I was like, this is what serenity is. You know, I had that moment when I went to work and I knew my daughter was asleep and I was just like, I could stress out about that or I can go on about my day. And I was like, is this what serenity is? I think it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is, that yeah. is my week. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thinking about uh, possible upcoming topics, we've got uh, uh an email that I'll read later uh, suggested a topic which I'm going to call living with lies. Um, it's one of those things that we face as people who love alcoholics and addicts is that part of that disease is, is lying. And how do we, how do we live with that? How do we deal with that? Um, and then we also had the, um, the share from uh, June a couple of weeks ago on clearing a path that I'm asking people to respond to. If, if you were, in a meeting that opened with that share, uh, what might you say when it came to be your turn to share in the meeting? And uh, share that with us by email or by voicemail. Uh, we welcome your thoughts on any of these topics. You can join the conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And Akila, how can people do that? Um, to leave a voicemail, call 734-707-8795. That number is 734 734- Seven zero seven eight seven nine five. You can call right now. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join a conversation from your computer. And if you don't want to use your voice, email can be sent to feedback at the recovery show.com. We love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of concepts eight, nine, and 10, or any of our upcoming topics, lies, living with lies, or clearing a path. If, I, if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? You can find out all the information you need to know about the show at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. We have notes for each episode, an occasional blog, links to the music that we talk about, links to other recovery podcasts and websites. You can leave comments at the blog. You can find our phone number and our email address there as well. So uh, if you're recommending our show to friends, just refer them to our website, therecoveryshow.com. We'll take a short break before diving into the mailbag. Our second musical selection available on the website is Respect by Aretha Franklin. Um, I think we probably all know this song. And it definitely talks about having authority and responsibility. So we got um, got some email and stuff piled up over the uh, the last couple of weeks while I was traveling and unable to uh, put up a new show. So why don't we start with this email from John? He writes, "Hello, 
First off, I'd like to say your podcasts are excellent and the topics really go far in promoting the idea of Al-Anon. I listen in my car constantly. As a newcomer, I have really come to believe that this program is going to help me. However, I still seem to find or question holes in the concepts. For example, after much convincing and listening to your podcast, I have come to understand that alcoholism is a disease and it should be separated from the person who has it. Hate the disease, not the person idea. So my question is, why does or did Spencer have such a hard time making amends to his wife? I'm not judging, and maybe I haven't quite got it yet, but I was unable to understand that. In my limited understanding of the program, I thought that this concept was designed this way so that it would be easy to make amends to one's alcoholic loved one, Mm -hmm. especially if that loved one was previously forgiven. Again, not judging. I love your podcasts and always look forward to the new ones. John F. And, you know, that's a good question, John. It really is. And I think it's my personal, how to put this? So I feel that um, I had been hurt by her um, and that I had lost trust in trust that she would not hurt me emotionally um, if I exposed myself. And so for years, I really shut down emotionally around her, did not share inner thoughts, um, did not share much of myself personally so that to protect myself from, from being hurt. Uh, And it has just taken me a long time to come to trust again. Uh, and and you talk about forgiving, and it, it is true that um, I had been able to forgive her for the things that she did under the influence of her disease um, long before I came to have enough, enough emotional trust to to open up and and start making amends. Mm-hmm. Uh, to start making direct amends, I think is is you know to say yes, I. I hurt you in these ways, and and here's what I'm doing. Um, I started making uh, what we call living amends uh, long before that, trying to amend my behavior so that I didn't do additional harm. But really opening up and admitting to the past harm was was difficult for me, and it's really really about me learning to trust again, um, which is somehow different from forgiveness. Yeah. So that's that's what I've got. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, forgiveness, I found, because the way I understand forgiveness is the past happiness in the past, and I accept the past so that it can't be changed, right? So I forgive the person. Yeah. Um, and as you, I was thinking about my dad, because my dad is a primary, well, there are so, there are so many alcoholics in my life, but, um, you know, I grew up with, with alcoholic parents, and, um, so I would, like my dad has, he's been sober and, and I think there are many things that I could do in our relationship differently to make it stronger and better. But there are also mm-hmm. barriers to that and that I don't completely trust. You know, it's the trust thing. And it's like, yeah. I'm not angry at him. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I am a little, a little angry, but I'm not angry at him anymore for the, what happened when I grew up. Like I can talk about it without anger and without resentment, but. When it's, when I think about certain, be, you know, doing certain things, it's like, I just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I do forgive yeah. him. I mean, I do, I'm not, I, I forgive him. I would say 100%. I forgive him. But at the same time, it's very, it's just, it takes time and, um, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, John, I want to thank you for that question because I'm sure that if you had that question, there are other people out there who also have that question. Yeah. And um, hopefully, um, maybe what Akil and I have said here uh, helps a little bit with understanding and maybe seeing uh, where that might be happening in, in your life as you're listening. So thanks, John. Um, could you read the uh, the next one? Yeah. Hi, Spencer. I have no experience with intervention, but I'm reading the book Addict in the Family by Beverly Conyers, and there was a good section in Chapter 6 on the subject. and mapped out the process and had a few reactions from addicts on how or if it's achieved the goal of getting them into recovery. I just heard your call for experience, strength, and hope on the subject and thought it might be useful. Hope it helps. Lori. Uh, thanks, Lori. Um, so we'll pass that on to, uh, or maybe the uh, the person who asked the question originally is listening. and uh, We'll hear this, but I'll pass it on to him. Got an email from Greg who writes, Hi, Spencer. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of weeks now. A friend of mine suggested it. I've been in Al-Anon for a couple of years, and it's transformed me. I have a home group, a service position, and a sponsor, and I've worked my first imperfect fourth and fifth steps. And uh, congratulations on that, Greg. With respect to making your show a meeting, I like its, quote, outlaw status because it does provide a degree of flexibility not usually found under the conference-approved umbrella, much like you alluded to in the recent Worry podcast. I'm in full support of the conference-approved style for meetings, if for no other reason than to keep the brand clear. The affiliation with AA is so close that I think it's important to be careful with the distinctions. But that leaves a lot of room for other valuable styles of meetings, such as yours. So I'd vote for staying out there in the (laughs) wilds. It might be that this show can reach those who Al-Anon would be unlikely to, those whom the traditional format is unappealing for whatever reasons. The other reason I wanted to write was to thank you for opening a new chapter in my recovery, specifically its pace. Early on, my sponsor suggested I listen to AA and Al-Anon speaker recordings, which I have and continue to. They are a profound source of recovery to me. But besides the many lessons, I took on a lot of the intensity. I particularly favor the orthodox big book thumpers and their matching tough Al-Anons. But doing so tends to make recovery serious business even when I'm having a good time with it. Your show reminds me to keep the touch light and be human about it, not a recovery machine. It's a great change in perspective for me. I was horrified by the story of the judgmental sponsor's inquisition. Uh, I'll interject here that we read that letter a couple of months ago, I think. Um, And uh, so that's what he's referring to. Anyway, he says, I was horrified by the story of the judgmental sponsor's inquisition. I hope the listener keeps at it and finds someone more congenial. I believe they're out there. Another friend of mine in program had a difficult time with hers, too. To hear her say it, the sponsor was being too directive with respect to personal habits. Truly, our business is trouble, and we all bring our own with us to the program, sponsors included. I've had good luck with mine. He's a double winner, and I'm his first Al-Anon sponsee. The language he used in his shares attracted me. It's been said that as a man, asking another to be your sponsor is sort of like asking him to be your valentine. And it was. For me, it would have been a mistake to go at the steps alone. Just like the big book says, one's sordid past becomes an asset, and his was, to me, a much more mature and experienced perspective on what was troubling me than I could have mustered by myself. Best regards, Greg. And, wow, thanks, Greg. I mean, that's there's some really good stuff yeah. in, your, in your letter here. Um, you have thoughts on uh, what Greg has to say? Yeah, I like what he said about the, the speaker meetings. I think listening to them can be overwhelming. 
especially if um, we forget that these people have usually been in the program for years and years and years. Um, and but it's sound because of the the length of them, they are usually like thirty to forty five minutes that they have to compress their whole story. That is very easy to to feel like, oh well, then they just came in and they got it together and now everything's great. And um and usually their stories don't say that, but because it, there's so much that they have to leave out and we're not there for all the nitty gritty, I think that happens. I also like the outlaw yeah. status and thinking about. I mean, you've gotten several emails from people who said. Yeah. That um, this is just a different way to approach Al-Anon for them. And it gives them more confidence and courage to actually go to real meetings uh, with the understanding that it won't be exactly the same, um, which can be helpful for some people. Yeah, but I also want to thank the person who wrote in a couple of weeks ago saying, um, please, please keep the literature in the program. And um, hopefully today we uh, we did that sufficiently. Um, this one was very focused on uh, conference-approved literature. Okay, we got another uh, email here about to be a meeting or not to be. Uh, can you want to read this? Yeah. Is from another. I think this is this is from a person named Lori. I think this is actually a different Lori than the one who sent the first letter. Okay, to be a meeting or not to be—that is the question. I vote to not be a meeting, so you can keep using non-conference-approved literature on your podcast. I've been in Al-Anon for almost a year now, struggling with the question: Should I stay or should I go? And while Al-Anon literature and meetings have been a lifeline for me, I feel that some of the readings regarding marriage are a bit outdated. There is wisdom in the old stories, but I just can relate to many that just aren't as culturally relevant anymore. I took what I needed and left the rest and feel extremely grateful to have many more choices than women did in the past. My point is that I wouldn't have been able to reach a decision, I'm going to go, if I hadn't also devoured Brene Brown, Melody Beattie, and Anne Lamott. I am always so hungry to learn of new books and resources. I bought Anne's Help Thanks Wow after hearing you talk about it on the podcast and treasure it. And any fan of Renee will want to get their mitts on her new book, Rising Strong, which soothed this anxious soul one particularly rough weekend and will be read many times over in the difficult months ahead. Prayer, meditation, yoga, and lots of therapy played a big part in helping me arrive at my decision. Your podcast has helped me figure out how to implement the steps in all my affairs and become more comfortable with having a relationship with my higher power. To me, every book, podcast, meeting, friend, and experience is my higher power orchestrating my recovery. I appreciate you casting a wider net to help us learn how this program works in real life. When I first started listening, I could never figure out why everyone would talk about work or their kids instead of always focusing in on the qualifier drama, but now I get it. Recovery seeks into all life's nooks and crannies. Hope this helps, Spencer. Keep up the great work. It's such a gift. Regards, Lori. All I'm going to say here is thank you, Lori, that your letter is such a gift to me. Let's see, we've got a voicemail from Joe. Hey, this is Joe C. from Rebellion Dogs Publishing. Just found the Recovery Show. It's a great podcast and looks like a wonderful resource. Very excited. I'm in long-term sobriety. Been around since the 70s. And I think that the Internet is really providing some great ways for people to connect Glad to see you're out there, and uh, I'll be back. All right. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Thanks, um, Let's see. Here's a letter from Kelly. Dear Spencer and co-hosts, thank you so much for your podcast's meetings. I've gained unprecedented recovery while traveling through them. I've spent much time on my own, and I've simply plugged in and tuned in. I listen to the podcasts at random, or I select by title, and some unfinished ones I return to later, and some I listen to again. 
I find this way sinks in exactly with what I need to hear at that moment. I had one unusual higher power moment while listening to the podcasts in this haphazard manner. A few months before, I'd emailed you to thank you for the podcast, which I'd discovered while recovering from concussion. I've continued to recover from the concussion. It's been five months now, and I still get headaches and so on, but I'm almost back to normal. I was traveling on a train while listening, and I had some stinking thinking going on. I just thought how on the outside I felt, and why was I even listening to these podcasts? Well, the show was up to the correspondence section, and would you believe it, you read out my email I'd written soon after my concussion. You can imagine how amazed I was. I certainly no longer felt alone, and it really helped hearing your daughter had also gone through concussion, and it took her a whole semester to start to get back to normal. It's similarly taken me some time and helped me to hear my email I'd written earlier and how far I'd come since then. Thank you so much, Spencer, for sharing your recovery with us all. And to the hosts that have joined you, the resource of your recovery podcasts have helped beyond my wildest dreams. With love and Alan on, Kelly from New Zealand. And uh, wow, I'm being heard all the way. And I do remember um, your earlier uh, email about uh, about your concussion and um, thinking that I should share the experience of my daughter. And, and apparently I did. Uh, and I'm glad it helped. And we have an email from, I think, another Lori. Uh, you want to read <laughs> sure. this one? Spencer, I know I'm powerless over alcohol, but how do I live with the knowledge that at any moment my loved one could relapse? And if he doesn't recover, that it may mean starting over. How does a person live like that, Lori? And uh, that that's a hard question, Lori. Uh, it's one that I certainly had to face over the years as, as my wife relapsed. Uh, multiple times, and that came up in a meeting about a week ago, I think it was. Um, we had a, a newcomer to the meeting who was struggling with, um, I think it was a brother who was caught in uh, an addictive cycle, and this person was was had exactly that question, that how how does he continue to live while you know, his brother might kill himself at any time with this, with his addiction. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there's no good answer for that. It's, it's faith in a higher power that, that I would get through at least. Uh, and that hopefully that my loved one would also find long-term sobriety, which did eventually happen, but that really wasn't clear for a while there. Um, there are some past episodes that, that might be, helpful. Um, there's one on relapse, um, and there's another one on living with active alcoholism or addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try to put links to those in the show notes. I don't have those episode numbers right in front of me. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on her question? Uh, yeah, I would say going to meetings a lot, talking to your sponsor a lot. I would read the detachment pamphlet, which I just looked at again because I was like, this is so hard. And the thing that one of the things that we learn is that we can't, you know, this powerlessness extends to relapse and that we can't manage another's behavior at all. Like we can't, we're not responsible for someone else's recovery. And though it may directly impact us in so many ways, and so that's where I think just keep going to meetings, keep working the steps and keeping really plugged into the program can help because if your loved one does relapse, 
then you are connected and you have a support system in place. That's that's really good. I hadn't thought about that, but that's so true. I, I just do that now, right? So I don't even think about it. <laughs> okay, one one last email here from Erica. It says, hey there. First, thank you so much for the show. When I can't make a meeting and I feel the anxiety of the addict in my life creep up, you become the new voice in my head and prevent me from getting on the crazy train, as I like to say. So thank you. I appreciate your work. One thing I struggle with in my current situation is being lied to. When my qualifier reverts back to an active addiction state, he lies more than anything else. I become a detective and I don't stop until I can prove the lie. Is it possible to have a show on lying or regaining trust after a period of lies? Thanks, Erica. And uh, as you probably heard earlier, I am suggesting that as a as an upcoming topic. I'd like to find a co-host for that uh, because that's I think that's a topic that really can uh, benefit from having multiple points of view and multiple experiences uh, to uh, to address. Yes, and people should write in with their experience, strength, and hope about that if they or call and do um, and leave a voicemail. Yeah, many voices. Yeah. Please do, uh, you know, and, and getting back to your response, Akila, to the uh, the previous letter, uh, um, going to meetings, sharing experience, hearing other people's experience, sort of understanding, it helps to come to understand and accept that this is a symptom of the disease, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's it's not about us. Um, mm-hmm. When when. My wife was lying to me about relapsing. Uh, it wasn't that she was lying to me. It's that she was really, she was lying to herself mm-hmm. and to everybody else around her uh, that uh, that she had relapsed. I want to thank uh, those of you who are sending in uh, responses to June's share about clearing a path. I'd like to encourage you, if you've been thinking about it, to Call, uh, send an email, record a share on your computer or your portable uh, smartphone and email it to me. Any number of ways you can get that, uh, that response to me that uh, I'd love to, I'd love to include, um, your thoughts on clearing a path in, in that upcoming episode. I want to thank people for the recent reviews in iTunes. Uh, these ratings and reviews do help to make us easier to find by those who are in need and seeking recovery. And uh, one of the reviews, I'm going to give five stars to this review. Uh, <laughs> this uh, titled Fabulous Recovery Tool for Beginners and Experienced Members by Pat from the West Coast. Spencer and friends have done a fabulous job of reaching out to all of us. This program has been a wonderful touchstone for me, keeping me on target and reminding me of important recovery tools. I use the podcast as a meeting in a pocket for between meetings. Even if I can't listen, I can read the summaries of the podcast and still have a great Al-Anon connection. Those who share provide an intimate, real-world view of what it is to work a 12-step program and the challenges that face all of us who love someone who has an addiction or has been affected by another's addiction. The topics are right on, and they are very consistent, referring to the tools and concepts of the Al-Anon for families and friends of alcoholics. I'm so grateful for this podcast. It is the best. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Pat. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Alice, Eric, and Tammy did. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. So if you click on the books link at the top of the webpage and order one of those books from Amazon through the website, we will receive a small commission. 
In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps us to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening to us. We are here for you. All right. And the uh, the last song selection is Not Afraid by Eminem, which you can listen to at therecoveryshow.com slash 128. And I found the reference to this song in a list of um, songs about leadership. And uh, what I find in this song is a, a man who is um, following a new path um, and is encouraging other people uh, to to follow him along this new path in in recovery, and uh, uh, I will warn you that uh, the song is explicit. So if you don't want to hear the f bombs, um, don't play it. <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's I think it's a great song from a, a source that I don't normally listen to. So it's nice to be able to include those occasionally. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem we were facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.